Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Doing Faith. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 2nd, 2016. This week's gospel reading begins with a request you might recognize. Increase our faith. If you're anything like me, you've made this request more than once in your life, perhaps in the blunt, insistent language the disciples use in the Gospel of Luke. I can't function on what I've got. You haven't provided enough. Give me more. To be fair, in the verses preceding the lection, Jesus has just delivered some heavy-duty teaching. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. And, even if your brother or sister sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Hardly easy stuff. No wonder the disciples cry more. Given the context, I'm inclined to applaud them. After all, their request feels so earnest, so well-intentioned. They're not asking for wealth or physical comfort or even safety from harm. They're asking for faith. What could possibly be wrong with that? Something, apparently, because Jesus responds with uncharacteristic annoyance. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, he scolds them, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Worse, he launches into a slave and master analogy that grates on the modern ear. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. I'll confess up front, I don't like Jesus in this passage. He sounds harsh and impatient. He seems to promise the impossible, a mulberry tree that bears fruit in the sea. His usual social radicalism is nowhere evident. He sounds like an endorser of slavery, one who not only accepts the institution but relies on its obnoxious abuses of power. Finally, he tells his disciples to regard themselves as worthless and to expect no appreciation or gratitude for their labors. What is happening in this passage? I can sidestep the interpretive difficulty in part by acknowledging that the lection is disjointed, not a coherent Jesus story with an arc and a context, but a cobbled-together collection of sayings that probably did not originate together. I can also minimize my discomfort by recognizing that the passage is rife with hyperbole. Jesus isn't talking about literal mustard seeds, oceans, mulberry trees, or slaves. He's exaggerating on purpose to make a point. But the passage still compels me to wrestle with it, because I care about the request at its heart. Increase our faith, the disciples ask. Increase my faith, I ask in some guise or another nearly every day. And Jesus says, well, no. He says no. Why? Maybe the only way to answer the question is to unpack what I mean by faith. What exactly am I asking for when I beg God to give me more faith? Sometimes I'm asking for the faith that moves mountains, a supernatural ability to impress or manipulate God into doing what I want. Sometimes I'm asking for an intellectual boost, an increased mental capacity to believe in the more challenging tenets of traditional Christianity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the second coming, and sometimes I'm asking for an antidote to anxiety. God, please take away the fear I feel as I face your invisibility and your silence. Grant me certainty so I'll feel happier, holier, 
stronger, braver, rewire my brain and my heart so that it becomes impossible for me to doubt you. When I take a hard look at my assumptions about faith, Jesus' no begins to make some sense. What if faith isn't quantifiable? What if it's not an emotion, not an idea, not a capacity? What if faith isn't even a noun? What if instead faith is engagement, orientation, action? What if faith is a daily, hourly movement into the God-saturated, God-centered vocations we were made to fulfill? What if faith is something we do, not something we have? Whenever I read the Gospels, I'm struck by how often and how lavishly Jesus commends the faith of those who seek him out. Your faith has saved you, he tells the woman who anoints his feet, the Samaritan leper who returns to thank him, the hemorrhaging woman who grasps his cloak. Your faith has made you well, he tells a blind beggar. Such faith I have not seen in all of Israel, he exclaims about a Roman centurion. What is it that Jesus commends in these people? As far as I can tell, the only thing they do is turn to him, orient themselves in his direction, trust him. What earns his admiration is their willingness, even in difficult, painful, and potentially risky circumstances, to lean into his goodness, healing, justice, and mercy. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus says to his disciples, as if to say, you do, don't you understand? You have faith already. This is not about proportion. I can't give you a recipe. We're not balancing chemical equations here with a neutron and two protons there. You have faith because you have me. You've seen me and known me. What else do you lack? I believe the invitation in this election is for us to go forth and live in light of what we see and know. In other words, to do faith, to do the loving, forgiving thing we consider so banal we ignore it. Why? Because a life of faith is as straightforward as a slave serving his master dinner, as ordinary as a hired worker fulfilling the terms of his contract. Faith isn't fireworks. It's not meant to dazzle. Faith is simply recognizing our tiny place in relation to God's enormous creative love and then filling that place with our whole lives. Barbara Brown Taylor writes that we waste a great deal of time and energy looking for the key to the treasure box of more. All we lack, she argues, is the willingness to imagine that we already have everything we need. The only thing missing is our consent to be where we are. G.K. Chesterton, in turn, suggests that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. If I'm honest, I must admit that when I ask God to increase my faith, what I'm really asking for is a spiritual life that is easy, smooth, and uncomplicated. Jesus' response to his disciples, however, suggests that faith requires rigor. It grows stronger when it's exercised and weakens when it's idle. In other words, Jesus does not sidestep the disciples' request for faith out of callousness. He sidesteps it out of wisdom and deep love. Why? Because he knows the things that make for human flourishing. He recognizes the muscular living our hearts require in order to thrive. Do faith, and faith will increase. Do faith, and faith's astonishing fruits will reward you. For books this week, we review Eric Fair's Consequence. Eric Fair's Consequence offers a brave and chilling account of the author's work as a government contractor in Iraq, charged with interrogating detainees in Baghdad, Fallujah, and Abu Ghraib. A devout Christian who grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, hailing from a long line of Presbyterians who valued their faith and marched off to war, Fair signs on as an interrogator in 2003, mere months before the infamous photographs of tortured Abu Ghraib prison scandalized the world. 
In a compelling, matter-of-fact voice, it neither makes excuses nor softens the horror. Fair relates his experiences using violence, sleep deprivation, stress positions, and isolation to extract information from Iraqi prisoners of war. As his actions, technically legal at the time, sear his conscience, Fair describes the emotional and physical toll his time in the interrogation booth takes. Unspeakable nightmares, alcoholism, suicidal ideation, and the near destruction of his marriage. Perhaps most compellingly, Consequence describes Fair's struggle to hang on to his Christian faith in the face of crippling guilt and the soul-hardening effects of profound and prolonged trauma. For Fair, there is no easy redemption, no atonement. I cannot ask God to accompany me into the interrogation booth, he writes. In scripture, God often works in prisons, but he is never on the side of the jailer. As powerful as a story is the prose style Fair uses for this astonishingly honest narrative. His sentences, clipped in staccato almost to a fault, mimic the detachment he himself feels. It's as if the telling itself enacts the trauma one more time. We approach the suffering Fair describes, but only in small, measured doses that fend off as often as they draw in. The memoir ends with Fair still hearing the voices of those he tortured. It is nearly impossible to silence them, he writes, as I know it should be. For those of us in danger of forgetting one of America's darkest and most costly sins in recent memory, Consequence offers an essential and painful corrective. For movies this week, we review Dogtown Redemption. Dogtown is a neighborhood in West Oakland that's plagued by drugs, violence, crime, systemic poverty, and unemployment. It's also home to a bustling business called Alliance Metals, a 16-year-old recycling center that's owned by Jay Anast. Every day, some 600 shopping cart recyclers come to Alliance to trade their trash for cash, perhaps $100 for hard work or on a good day. Alliance also functions as a de facto community center where the poorest of the poor gather most every day. This documentary film follows the personal stories of three recyclers and in doing so humanizes their lives. They come from broken families. They struggle with addictions, violence, poor health, and the many stigmas attached to street people. But they are creative, resilient, hardworking, and inspirational. There's one big problem, though. After complaints from neighbors and local business owners about the grime, the garbage, the drugs, public defecation, the smells, and so on, the city of Oakland sues Alliance for illegal activities. At a council meeting, Jason protests, Recycling saved my life, and the life of his partner, Heather, who formerly worked the streets. I'm not a saint, Anas tells the council. I'm a business owner. The stories of Jason, Landon, and Hayok take the viewer on a journey through the landscape of love and loss, devotion and addiction, prejudice and poverty. Dan, watch this film on the PBS website. And finally, for poems, we offer Seamus Haney's Voices from Lemnos. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 2nd, 2016. I'm Debbie Thomas.